Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hi, Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Composer and saxophonist Andy Scott is with us today. He's a highly versatile musician whose distinctive musical voice encompasses elements of jazz, world, and contemporary classical styles. He's a band leader and performs with renowned ensembles such as the Apollo Saxophone Quartet and the Dave Hassel Andy Scott Duo. Andy's also won a Basque British Composer Award and has given workshops worldwide. We'll have his website and social media in the show notes so you can learn more about him and the variety of activities he does as an arts entrepreneur. Quick shout out to our mutual friend Bruce Perry for connecting us with Andy. Thanks for being here, Andy. Thank you very much. Yes, great to see you both and chat with you both all the way from yeah. the UK. Well, let's, uh, let's start by having you tell us how you got started as an arts entrepreneur back when you were a newly minted conservatory graduate. Right, this is an interesting one in terms of the question. <laughs> and, and can I just say before I take a detour before answering your question, um, it got me thinking about you know, this podcast you're doing and I've listened to some of the episodes, fantastic. Uh, but the whole entrepreneurship, and, and I'd never really thought about that before. And I've been a freelance musician for, like, you know, 37 years or something. And then I thought, what does that actually mean? Because it seems like a bit of a scary word and um, uh, that I don't associate with music myself. And I thought, well, why is that? And then there was one definition that said um, an entrepreneur is a person who attempts to make a profit by starting a company or by operating alone in the business world, especially when it involves taking risks. And I thought, yeah, that, I think that's Cambridge University Dictionary or something. Um, but <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay, that's, it's not so scary a word now. I kind of, maybe I've been doing that, but without really recognising it or realising it. So your yeah. first question were, um, threw me a bit because I had to, I've had to take a few steps back and actually think, what does this mean? So, um, but then, yeah, you know the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, Nick, and um, Mm -hmm. 
we were, um, I studied there in sort of 1985 to 89, graduated. And then everything I did, I think, for the next 10 years was reactive. So um, it was, I was, I was very fortunate to, to play in the Apollo saxophone quartet, which we started at the RNCM. They have a big mm. chamber music program. And we started doing the usual things that groups do at that age, um, competitions and trusts and awards and things like that. And we were fortunate to be the recipient of a few awards. And rather than be cash uh, prizes, it was, you say, we won a, um, the Tokyo International Chamber Music Competition. It was a great one to win. And we got an agent in Japan. And we kept that agent for quite a long time. We did eight tours of Japan which was amazing. And then there were some, um, there were some organizations in the UK. One was called Live Music Now. You auditioned for it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nick from when you were over in the UK, but yeah. this, this enables you. If you're on the scheme, you receive some training, and then you can go into schools, you can go into hospices, mm. um, prisons. And, I mean, that is a massive learning curve at that age. Mm-hmm. It becomes yeah. real world. You've come out of this bubble of a music college where... It's the yeah. center of the universe. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you, you hit the real world. And it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> We've got to learn how to communicate with people and think on our feet very, very quickly, quite apart from playing our instruments and communicating in a musical manner. So, so yeah, I found myself straight out of college, not thinking in a, particularly in a business sense other than survive, yeah. Um, but more thinking musically, which I, I, is still the balance for me. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, I thought, right, I'm going to take every gig I can um, playing the saxophone. And that might sound obvious as I'm a saxophonist, but at that time, sax players were expected to play the clarinet and expected to play the flute. Mm-hmm. So it was like a trebling instrument. So lots of my friends were doing shows and were getting regular theatre gigs and things like that. And then uh, big band work sometimes required some doubling. So um, I got a, I, a, I did a big band gig for about five pounds. Um, we all went along. All these like old boy pro players, you know, and I was a little kid sitting there on second alto in the section. Anyway, I didn't know. There were three band leaders in that big band. So from doing, you know, uh, uh, it hardly covered my petrol. But from doing that, I had a great time musically and I learned a lot. But then these three band leaders started phoning me up uh, to yep. play in their bands. And they were smaller bands. They were, they were more like function bands. So mm-hmm. I'd get regular gigs. Uh, it would just be on one saxophone, no doubling. Uh, and then the Apollo Sax Quartet was commissioning music, was doing competitions, was doing gigs. And it's sort of, um, that's how it started really. So... I'm amazed now, you know, at, at music colleges and universities, you know, the, what, what they're, how the students are guided and what they're told and the kind of business sense is a world away from anything, you know. You just did it and got on with it and didn't think too much about yeah. it, I think. Yeah. So it's fascinating to sort of see this <laughs> ne- next generation and, and, how, and how they're coping with things. I'll come on to my yeah. son a bit later, but I must ask, uh, it's been a long rambling first answer. <laughs> that five pounds, right? That was just a ticket to audition. And look how many people you met that changed your trajectory. Exactly. 
Exactly. Right. And, and it's, it's those kind of things. And when you look back on it, you think, okay, it's like if you're going in and you're depping for someone on a gig. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are you trying to do? You, you, you're trying to go in and just do the job. And by doing the job, you don't want to annoy people. You, you, you want to try and blend musically. You want to play in tune. You want to have a sound. Uh, you, you're not trying to take, take over the world. You're not trying to get the person who gave you gig. You're not trying to get their gig because word, word right. will soon get around and people will be, um, don't get in for a debt. That's <laughs> it. Right. That's it. And, and just those kind of things, really. And just, um, but as I said, it was just, um, wasn't particularly thought through. And, yeah. uh, and it was only sort of further on, I suppose, in my career where I've been able to sort of take a step back and, and look and maybe, maybe plan ahead and give it a bit more direction. Yeah. And that, that's what I was going to ask you about then. Um, since you didn't necessarily see yourself, you know, as an entrepreneur out creating new opportunities for yourself and that sort of thing, was there a point in time where you kind of said, okay, you, you said you were mostly reactionary in, in, that, in that early period, right? You do one thing that might lead to another thing and you would just do that. And then the next thing would come along. Was there a point in time where you started saying, okay, how can I be more uh, proactive on making things happen? I think it's it, it gradually evolved. So, taking a step further back, um, when I was I, I came from a family that was full of musicians, and um, my dad played clarinet, piano, went to Royal College of Music, and my grandparents were both pianists in London, and opera singers who used to come over to Covent Garden, places like that. They'd stay at their house, and they had two rooms each with a grand piano in, so they were rehearsal pianists. And then my granddad went out and played to the black and white films. He'd improvise to the, the uh, to black and white films. So there was always a lot of music, coupled with the fact when I was at school, I had no interest academically. You know, I failed my exams, um, and then I had to take a gap year. Didn't get into music college. Took a gap year, and uh, I don't know. I just it was just it was sort of the only thing that I knew how to do. But I happened to love music anywhere and everything that goes with being a musician. Um, so yeah, it's, um, but, but two or three years before music college, and this is, this is the point I would start a saxophone quartet at school. Uh, or I would, uh, I remember listening. Yeah. I remember listening to Al Giroux. I loved Al Giroux and he, you know, Steve Gabb was playing his band, Dave Sanborn. And it was just, yeah, it was great. And there was a track called Boogie Down. And I really wanted to just play it. And it's not like nowadays, you know, it's pre-internet, so you, you couldn't just go online and get a PDF. So I transcribed that track and then got a band together. And uh, we got a little pub gig. We were all under 18, but we got a little gig at a pub. And with the help from my saxophone teacher at the time, who was a proper pro player, he was great. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, so I just, without knowing it, I was organizing things. Um, collaborations, creative projects, doing the writing, playing in it. And essentially, 40 years later, that's exactly what I'm doing. And yeah. I, was, I think, and, and the, the really fortunate thing about, about it is I'm, I'm kind of happy doing that. I think as a musician, if we can find a place where we can think, you know, we don't want to become like a bitter old musician. You know, and if we can find a place where we 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 feel not not 
totally comfortable with pushing ourselves, but mm-hmm. feels right for us. Yeah. And uh, I don't think you can ask for any more. And I think, I think I've, um, that is reflected from starting these things when I was 16. By the way, we had a rehearsal when we played Boogie Down. And uh, the band was so loud that, the, that one of the neighbours called the police. And <laughs> so police car rocked up. <laughs> and we had to abandon the rehearsal. But we played it. It worked. <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's, you know, that's when you know you're doing something, is when you get the cops called on you. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's funny. Well, yeah, you know, success. So success means different things to different people. And you know, I've had people come up to me saying, well, your idea of success is making a lot of money. No, it's not. Don't ascribe something mm. right when you don't know. I mean, your success, yeah. you're getting to do what you want. I think that's a lot of entrepreneurs are like I th- that. I think what you said is so true, Nick, because with social media nowadays, not just social media, but it's so easy just to for someone to have an opinion and spout yeah. it out without even knowing half of the time what they're talking about. You yeah. know, I'm really careful when I talk about other musicians because – I'm going on maybe limited information that I have. So, and it's a responsibility if you're talking to students. You know, you can't go just banding things around that you don't. You don't really know what that person is doing that you're talking about, and what that musician wants to do, and what their goals are. Unless you sat down and had a chat with them. Yeah, right. So I'm kind of careful. I'm I'm careful with that type of thing, and um, and I really just love learning. I think um, being a composer um, opens me up to a lot of different worlds, as does being a saxophonist because of the different Mm -hmm. styles of music. And I have to say, sorry, some of the guests you've had on, like you mentioned uh, Bobby Watson. Was he your first guest? He He was. was. Oh, my God. He's a a hero of mine. He played. He's fantastic. Yeah, I heard him play in the UK when the Apollo Sax Quartet Mm-hmm. Um, we noticed there was a gig in Manchester and a really great venue called Band on the Wall. And it was a mm-hmm. group called the 29th Street Saxophone Quartet. And Bobby Watson played in that. And yeah. we went to hear them on a Thursday night and they were playing in London the next night. And we were totally blown away. The four of us got in the car and drove to London. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, and, uh, if you listen to the podcast, he, he gave us permission to use uh, some of his music as our oh, theme music. Amazing. I'll have to listen to that one. I listened to yeah. the Colin Curry interviews. They were great. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And also, yeah. Um, I, should, I know you, I think, am I allowed to say that you, that you interviewed Danny Howard? Uh, yep, that's going to be yeah. Well, I've said it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, she'll be before you anyway, so yeah. Yeah, well, she's, um, <laughs> she, I, it's funny because I've been... Uh, chatting with her recently because she's written us a, a brand new saxophone quartet oh awesome for the apollo yep. sax quartet and yeah. um uh we just recorded it last week oh wow but danny is this you know she's got this style of her own and uh, obviously mm-hmm. a fantastic communicator as well mm-hmm. so we can't wait to get other sax quartets to play the piece yeah yeah well, and we can probably we'll see when this airs, but by then you might have a link we could link to the to the piece or something. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about compositions. So your compositions are published by Astute Music, and that's a company your wife founded in the early two thousands. How would you describe the dynamic of having a spouse as a business partner? <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got to think really carefully about this one. <laughs> 
No, I mean, Lauren, she probably won't listen. No, it's okay. no, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> no, Lauren, it, Lauren and I met in 1995. We were both uh, on a gig with the Halle Orchestra in Manchester. I was playing tenor sax. Uh, she's a harpist, and she was living in London, but was on trial with the Halle. So she, we got together, and then there was a, a period. There was a moment where we had to make a decision: was I going to move to London? Or was she going to move up to Manchester and those kind of things? Fortunately, um, it worked out. She she wanted to move out of London, and I wasn't too keen at that time of move, moving to London. So it worked out. Then the publishing side of things, um, I had various meetings at um, companies in London and was approached by a couple of companies about a publishing deal, but I wasn't really happy with what they were proposing which generally went along the lines of, oh, we like this piece, or we'd, we'd like to publish this one and that one. It wasn't the whole lot. But then they quite often say, oh, but before we publish them, would you like, we'd like you to do some arrangements of, say, of, I remember one of them said, Beatles tunes for sax quartet. And I'm thinking, listen, I love the Beatles. The Beatles are incredible. But there's, or there's loads of that out there already. Mm. You know, and it's like, this is not what I'm really interested in. So obviously, you know, you're speaking with your, with your partner or your husband or your wife. And, uh, and Lauren just said one day, she said, I'm sick of this with these publishing companies. I'm going to start a publishing company. And when she gets a bee in her bonnet, she just goes for yeah. it. You know, so, um, yeah, she started this publishing company, Steep Music. And, She's, I mean, she's built it up. It's been incredible, really, because, you know, she's a, a mum, uh, obviously wife, full-time sort of, you know, freelance harpist. Uh, she has a couple of people working for her. Um, where I'm sitting now is in our sort of garden. We've got a, a new build, which is offices and a print room. And then I've got this music room I'm in now. So, um, yeah, couple of people come around three mornings a week, do the process, the orders, do the printing of the books, all that kind of thing. That's great. And then getting it on PDF as well, because the post can be a nightmare in certain countries. Um, you know, music that might go missing in the post if something goes to, I don't know, Italy or South Africa or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the moment, because of Brexit, which is an absolute nightmare, um, I don't know any musician, of course, that voted for Brexit. It's it's just terrible on um, performing artists. Um, That's actually come up a couple times in our interviews with some. Yeah, it's it's disastrous. It's it's like small island mentality, you know, cutting ourselves off. And now the paperwork that's required um, for musicians to go into Europe and do gigs is meaning that most of the gigs aren't possible they don't become financially viable. So mm-hmm. it's a real mess, um, mm. coupled with um, COVID as well. I mean, right. and I think it's very interesting in one sense because whilst we seem to be coming out of it, it's a double whammy of COVID and Brexit. Sadly, a lot of the, the grassroots venues are suffering and closing. Yeah. Well, and of course, they've got these blimmin' um, heating bills as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, just this morning I was reading something, I don't know if it was Wall Street Journal, but uh, <coughs> at the time, literally today, the inflation rate is 10% in the UK. Yeah, That's what I read. yeah, interest rates are, are going up and up. So I feel 
dreadfully yeah. sorry for people with you know high mortgages. And, oh, that I, I might have misspoke. Yeah. I meant inflation. Sorry. Right. Inflation. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And- yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but but I'll give you a quick example. There's um, there, there's a concert series. My, I, I know we'll probably speak about it a bit later. That my, my wife and myself started in our hometown because mm-hmm. we wanted to do something in our hometown when when we moved here, and we'll talk about it later. But the, the reason I brought it up was because there's an Italian restaurant uh, right by the gig, and this fella, we thought, wouldn't it be nice if the musicians can rehearse and get something decent to eat, and then do the gig, look after them. You know, and not just go and find a fish and chip shop or, or mm-hmm. go to the pub. So um, anyway, I was in there the other week and this fella, the Italian guy, he said, look at this, Andy. He said, I used to pay, uh, what did he used to pay? £700 a month um, on his heating for the restaurant, heating bills, energy bills. Mm-hmm. He said, look at this. He showed me his phone, £3,000 a month. How, wow. yeah, it's crazy. So the hospitality sector, they're, they're yeah. working so hard just to survive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. I'm obviously I'm highlighting a few things that are more on sure. the mm-hmm. negative. But of course, the way musicians and artists dig in and, yeah. and yeah. then become creative and even more creative and find ways through it is incredible, you know. Well, especially That's because, I mean, when you're looking at fuel depends on if it's oil i don't know what you eat with right mm. that affects deliveries it affects everything yeah. yeah anyway well that's you know so i guess then to summarize what's how would you describe the dynamic it's uh, oh yeah it's yeah. great sorry i was straying from the topic of my wife <laughs> <laughs> were you trying to avoid that well just, you, know, you, know. you know um yeah the we're, we're very fortunate um in terms of we both have this kind of freelance musician, creative musician mentality. And um, so we just talk a lot about music and different projects and stuff like that. Um, um, and so, yeah, it's just, so we are very fortunate. And again, I'm not going to pass any judgment on what anyone else does. You know, someone might uh, have a, a partner who, doesn't play an instrument, doesn't know much about music, does a nine-to-five job in something totally different. Pros and cons, aren't there? I suppose it's, you know, you'll have the financial stability from one person coming in, maybe. Um, uh, and then it's just how you make it work, I think. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I, there are things like we can help each other musically as well. Um, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really thrilled, actually, because Lauren... Um, when she was at specialist music school, she tells me when she was about 14 or 15, she composed a piece of music and a composition teacher was so brutal to her about it mm. that she's never wanted to compose a piece of music again, which is really sad. And that teacher should be, you know, yeah. you know that, that kind of thing. Fortunately, again, I don't think that really happens as much these days, which is a great thing. Um, mm. But... Anyway, she started writing again about five or six years ago. Yeah, and she was writing pieces for her own instrument, solo harp. But she got into the lever harp as opposed to the orchestral harp. So um, especially in the UK, that's massively associated with folk music, Scottish music, Irish music. 
but she's coming in from a different angle because she's coming in as a classical sort of contemporary classical musician. Uh, she's found these extended techniques, these great sounds that, which importantly she she incorporates very well within her music. You know, it's not just standard technique for the sake of it. There's a musical reason for it. Um, so, and she, now she's uh, recorded her second album. Um, the first one came out um, with an American distributor. Is it, is it Avi, A-V-I-E, records, based in America? Yeah, it but, could be. Yeah, yeah and got, got quite a lot of radio play. Um, and is now receiving uh, commissions as a result of that. That's great. So it's kind of nice. So so she she totally gets it now. When I'm writing and, you know, you get in the zone and you're away with the mm. fairies and 14-hour mm. <laughs> flyby, <laughs> he's like, oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.